Hello, listeners. This is the good lady wife slash producer, Kalia. Real quick at the top of the show, before we get started, I want to give you a heads up. As you will hear in a minute, Matthew will explain further. Today's episode is a little bit different than the normal type of episode. One other note, though, that I feel I have to do is to let you know that we were using a different piece of equipment during the recording of this episode. And I think you'll be able to tell. The audio quality is not great. There were definitely issues with Matthew's microphone. I've tried to clean it up as best I can, but the result is that there might be a few words and phrases that are a little hard to understand. We thought about re-recording the episode, but part of the charm of this format that we tried today is the spontaneity and the silliness and the conversational tone. None of that would have worked if we had done it a second time. It would have sounded canned and rehearsed because, well, honestly, we would have said everything already. So what you're getting today is a different type of episode with unfortunately a little bit of an audio issue. I hope you enjoy it anyways, though, and we will be back in the feeds in another two weeks with a regular episode. Happy Halloween. I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. This podcast is an exploration of ghostly folklore and its relationship to the cultures that produce it. I don't know where or when you are listening to this, but I hope that it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. So, as longtime listeners know, Kalia is my good lady wife slash producer. And she had the suggestion that we try an episode where, rather than having me write and read a script, we simply have a conversation. So that episode is today. And we're going to talk about something that I suspect a lot of people would consider to be distinct from ghosts, but actually is not only ghost adjacent, but I would argue a variation on ghosts, which is vampires. Ooh, I was trying to think of a good dun 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 noise for vampires, but all the sounds I thought of in my head sounded vaguely disgusting. They're like thonk 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 or so I I I'm just gonna skip all of that. So ta-da! <laughs> we we could go out to the garage and record me hitting a uh, piece of wood with a mallet. Well, there you go. <laughs> yes, if only if I wasn't copywritten, we could have one of the like vampire dusting sounds from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You know. Well, it, it's good that you bring that up because the way that I think about vampires is heavily influenced by a book that I don't own, but you do. Indeed. Can I tell the story of the book? Certainly. Okay, so this is apropos. I love the show Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I mean, as anybody with taste would. And I also love the podcast Buffering the Vampire Slayer, which is no longer doing a recap of Buffy. But for a long time, Kristen and Jenny, these two wonderful podcasters, did a podcast about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where they recapped every episode, and then there was an original song for every episode. And if you haven't listened to it, you should totally listen to it because it's amazing. But out of this podcast grew a whole group of people who loved this podcast and made a group online and hung out and there were events and all sorts of amazing, wonderful things have come from this amazing, wonderful group of people. And one of the things that came from that is a secret Slayer gift exchange that happens 
every year around the holidays where you get matched with another Scooby person uh, anywhere all over the world. And then you send them a random Christmas present, Yuletide greetings, and they send you something or stay, you know, somebody gets your name. It's all a secret Santa, secret slayer kind of thing. Anyways, one year, I think it was the first year that I did it. I got a book in the mail and I was very excited to read it. But it managed to make its way to the bottom of my TBR pile because I read a lot and I have a lot of books to read. And then um, somebody in my home borrowed it and then it was living on his shelf for a very long time. And I totally lost track of where it was, but he read it and he enjoyed it and he learned a lot. Okay, now, Matthew, you can talk. Tell us about the book specifically. The book is called Vampires, Burials, and Death. It's by Paul Barber, and it is essentially a very thorough discussion of the development of vampire folklore in Europe. And the folkloric vampire is very, very different than the pop culture vampire, but most of us know very little to nothing about the folkloric vampire, and we know a lot about the pop culture vampire, so we assume the pop culture vampire is the folkloric vampire. So this book is very interesting. And Matthew has told me a little bit about what it talked about. And I think it might have been one of the this book, as long as well as one of the other books that you've read that you've talked to me about, that really influenced part of one of your early episodes. I want to say 50 Berkeley Square. Yes, I think was your first episode. And you were talking about the overlap between ghost and vampire and people would say one word when they kind of meant the whole other thing or the whole other thing meant one word can you talk a little bit about that for those people who didn't listen to that episode right so one of the things that paul barber discusses in this book is that we like to think of a ghost as being one distinct category a vampire is another distinct category a werewolf is another distinct category a witch is another distinct category and so on one of the things that Paul Barber talks about in this book is that in the folklore of Eastern Europe, the terms, although they do mean different things, the term that translates into witch, the term vampire, the term warlock, the term werewolf, they do mean different things. There's a lot of fluidity in them. And you might actually use a term for one when you're talking about the others And they're not always made out to be clear, distinct, different things. You know, somebody might become a vampire because they were a witch. A vampire might be able to transform into a dog or a wolf, which would make them a werewolf, things like that. So there's this kind of lack of distinctions in folklore that is mirrored by a very clear distinction that we make in general popular culture. Interesting. And one of the things that this book really has got me thinking about is for years I've been bugged by a tendency that we have culturally where there's this idea that if there's a myth there must be a fact underlying that myth from which the myth grew and there's a fair chance that a lot of listeners are listening and thinking well yes obviously that must be true it's not a completely false idea but it's also not as straightforward as people make it out to be. The The thing underlying the myth, the truth underlying the myth, may be a cultural truth. A cultural truth as opposed to... So it might be that the story is a parable or, you know, in some other way is trying to teach a lesson. And so that lesson may be the truth underneath the legend. Alternatively, you know, a great example of this that I remember from grad school was... There were stories about kangaroo moving across the landscape in Australia. 
and the places that he would stop and do things were locations where you could get resources. If you need ochre, well, this place where a kangaroo got sick and essentially expelled phlegm and it turned into ochre, well, now you know if you go there, you'll always get ochre. The place where a kangaroo stopped to get water, oh, well, you know there's an oasis there. It was a way of providing a map. It's not that you know there was this actual figure at some point in the past that came to be known as kangaroo who went and did all these various things. It's that kangaroo simply a guide for a map that you can now carry in your head so that you always know where to go to get what you need. So is in that example, is that the cultural truth or the yes. other? Okay. Yeah, I, it, it, and that's kind of a crossover where it's both a cultural truth and a phys- physical truth. There is a physical landscape. What you get there might be things that you need culturally, such as ochre for creating art, or it might be things that you need to survive, like water. But the character of kangaroo is used as a guide to get you there. So kangaroo's journey is a cultural truth. You know, if you go from point A to point B, you'll be able to get these things you need, as opposed to a physical truth of there was once a person who we've now come to know as kangaroo who made these travels. But it would make sense if there was a person or a caravan or a group of people who went on this travel and then were like, okay, as a way to help us remember our route and to remember that you know, in three days we could find the water and in two days, if we go this direction, we can find the ochre. So let's tell a story to our kids so that they'll remember that's then that is a myth that's based in some part in truth. Right. Right. But it's a very different thing than, you know, there was a creature that was part kangaroo, part human that did these things. Rather, it's a device that's used to help impart the lesson. It feels like that's so similar to to maybe not even always need the distinction. I, I think when people say, yes, this myth is based on fact, they're not thinking this type of fact or that type of fact. They're thinking that this myth grew up from something else before. Well, let me get, let me give you a better example, perhaps for a general Western audience, King Arthur. You know, you often hear people say, well, who was the real King Arthur? Even if we assume that there was a leader in the British Isles by the name of Arthur, which there may or may not have been, there's actually a lot of conflicting evidence on that, that leader would not have done really any of the things attributed to King Arthur in both folklore and later in the uh, medieval written romances. So the idea that you're going to go find the real Arthur that underlies the legend is just kind of an odd assumption. There is no real Arthur. There never was. There might have been a British military leader at one point named Arthur. There is some evidence for that, but he was not a king. He did not do any of the various things that are attributed to the mythical King Arthur. He was just a guy who happened to lead an army. Can you imagine the awkward conversations in heaven? Oh my God, I'm so excited to meet King Arthur. Oh, actually, I'm just a dude. I had an army. Yeah, and a round table. Well, no, we really didn't have tables. We sat on the ground. No, 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 I read all about it. And you were married to this woman and she cheated on you. No, my wife was very loyal and we had a wonderful marriage. And So if you go to that, now, what about all the medieval romances and the legends? What do those tell us? Well, there's elements of them that are about integrating pagan britain with the romans who were you know at that point pagan and also christianization of both groups 
There's elements that talk about the role of the feudal lords in the medieval system. You know, what do you owe your lord? What does your lord owe you? There's parts that are about how somebody who is in a position of power is supposed to behave. So it gets to, these are what I mean by cultural truths. There are these rules that are being outlined for the nobility in the King Arthur story, and they're being given an example in the form of Arthur and his knights. And there is this notion that if you behave in these ways, you and your society will be better. So that's a cultural truth. But whether or not there ever was a British military leader named Arthur is absolutely irrelevant to that. So searching for, you know, the in quotes, real Arthur, it's kind of this weird quixotic quest that a lot of people engage in, but ultimately doesn't really mean much. Okay, so how does that connect to vampires? Right. Okay. Two ways. The first is that a lot of the explanations you'll read about the origins of vampire myths have nothing to do with vampire folklore. You know, you'll hear that there are people who have medical conditions that cause them to need to consume blood or want to consume blood, that these same people, the medical condition will often cause them to have a sensitivity to sunlight, things like that. And so people say, well, that's where vampire myths come from, except that's that's the pop culture vampire, which rises out of the early 19th century and bears very little resemblance to the actual folklore of vampires from Eastern Europe. You'll often see people say that, one of the ones I often saw was, Greek vampires eat dates, not the blood of their victims, but they'll cause sickness and do all of these various other things, and they'll make a nuisance of themselves. The vampires, not vampire bats. Vampires. Vampire bats are not native to uh, Europe, so... Well, I know, but you're talking about something that eats grapes and causes sicknesses. It sounds more like a... Yeah, eat states. But yeah, so that's the claim is that, you know, this Greek creature is the Greek version of a vampire. It'd be more accurate to say that's the Greek version of what's called a revenant Mm. and that the vampire is also a revenant. So these are just local variations on a larger kind of ur myth of the revenant. And the revenant is essentially the dead returned but typically not in the form of like a hazy spirit that does come in during the early modern period a bit. But in the medieval period, it was that they were physically present. They were either climbing out of the grave or sometimes the body might remain in the grave, but nonetheless, a physical presence of the dead person shows up and they spread illness. They make a nuisance of themselves. They eat all your food. They you know, destroy your equipment. They, they could do any number of things. There's a particular North myth where the revenant basically just starts jumping on people's roofs and keeping them awake at night. <laughs> we call those rats or squirrels yeah. <laughs> for here, but okay. But the revenants in medieval folklore, they do all sorts of stuff. It's not simply going and haunting. It's not simply consuming the blood or causing disease. Almost any unpleasantness could be blamed on a revenant. And no no sucking in the blood, no exsanguination. Okay, so that gets kind of interesting. One of the things Paul Barber gets into is he makes the argument that the myths of revenants in general and vampires in particular are actually based on a physical reality. But the physical reality is not some rare medical condition, the way that a lot of people who want to talk about pop culture vampires claim it is. Rather, it is states of decomposition. So, for example, when a body decomposes, the uh, fluids from the body, which is primarily blood, but not only blood, 
will start coming out through the various orifices, primarily the mouth. So if you go and exhume a body, you'll see that it's got blood in its mouth. You know, the skin starts to dry out and pull back. It makes it look like the fingernails have gotten longer or the teeth have gotten longer and sharper. It's not because anything on the fingernails or the teeth have changed. It's because the soft tissue is drying out and pulling back. A lot of the actual folklore around vampires and the firsthand accounts that people have made over the centuries of the exhumation of bodies thought to be vampires talk about how when the body is pulled out, it's bloated, which shows that it's been feeding on the locals, very often feeding on their blood because of the blood around its mouth. But actually, when a body decomposes, the bacteria cause gas to build up in the body cavity, which causes the body to bloat. In a very similar way, you'll hear a sigh or a cry out. Well, that's gas getting shoved through it again. So instead of the sound when we dust vampires, we should really hear like a slow fart sound happening. So the gas goes over the vocal cords, so it can sound like a moan or a scream, apparently. Oh, well, mine's funnier, but okay. That's fair enough. <laughs> I just feel like we've really missed a chance to have a lot of farting vampire jokes. You know, like Twilight would have been a much better story if they didn't just sparkle, but they also like oozed gas as they walk. It does make them a little less romantic, I suppose, but it is a lot scarier. If you wanted mm -hmm. something scary coming into your house, you know, a, a bad sulfur smell because it's farting all over the place while it's trying to like get you and moaning as it's seeping its gases. That's bleh. Yeah. And in fact, we've got essentially that. I mean, if you want to make a good argument, the pop culture zombie of today, in many ways, bears a stronger resemblance to the uh, folkloric vampire than the pop culture vampire does. A decaying body that comes to feed on the living. I mean, yeah, that's true. I think zombies are more like mindless and right. And the revenant is usually not mindless. They're malevolent. And they might be, you know, bent on one particular cause, but they're not usually mindless. But other than that, you know, it's a rotting corpse that comes from the grave to cause torment to the living. That's pretty close to the old folkloric vampires compared to, you know, Count Dracula. So when did the shift happen? When did it change from these remnant things to what we think of now with the romantic vampires and the sucking of the blood and, you know, mind control and all of that other stuff that we think about? Okay, so there is a gathering in a castle in Europe back in the early 19th century that's very famous because it is the origin of Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. Mary Shelley and her uh, lover at the time, later husband, attended along with Lord Byron, John William Polidori, and a few other folks, and they challenged each other to write the best ghost story that they could. Well, Lord Byron began writing a story about a cursed nobleman who was returned from the dead and caused bad things to happen, but he stopped because he got bored. But one of the other attendees, John William Polidori, actually thought this was a pretty good idea for a story. So he took what Byron had written, rewrote portions of it, and then built out from that and wrote a story called The Vampire. And where did he come up with the word vampire? Vampire is an Eastern European, I believe, Slavic word for a revenant. Okay. Thank you. That makes a lot of sense then. Okay. And Eastern Europe, just to understand, had a kind of allure 
that, you know, by the 1930s would be replaced by the allure that people had for Asia. You know, it was the place where people were thought of as being backwards, but also closer to mysticism, things like that. So terms that you could take out of Eastern Europe would have a certain resonance in Western Europe based on essentially what we would now think of as racist ideas about Eastern Europe. Okay. So he used the word vampire because it's an Eastern European word. Now, in this story, Polidori shaped the vampire as he wrote about it to essentially be both a tribute to and a parody of Byron. It was a nobleman who was highly seductive, came in, created all sorts of chaos, broke hearts, and did all manner of bad things but was nonetheless, you know, very suave, very seductive, very enticing figure, which is very different than the actual folkloric vampires who were Slavic peasants. Okay. (laughs) You know, and this vampire, of course, was also feeding on the victims that he had in a way that earlier vampires hadn't. Now, this idea was became relatively popular. There were several penny dreadfuls written throughout the 19th century that involved uh, vampire characters. The one I've never read this one, but I just think it has the greatest name was Varney the Vampire. <laughs> I, I just can't help but think of Jim Varney, who's the guy who did the Hey Vern commercials back in the 80s. Ernest, yeah. And then probably the ultimate form, the one that we still work off of and are either basing our current vampire stories off of or intentionally responding to today would be Bram Stoker's Dracula in the late 19th century. So early in the 19th century, the vampire, it became possible for the vampire to be something a bit different than the revenant. He's no longer a bloated corpse that shows up and causes chaos by creating general nuisance, you know, killing people or stealing stuff or breaking them or just keeping them up all night. He became a more sinister kind of spiritual force who shows up and corrupts those around him. And yeah, by the time you get to Dracula, that is now fully formed. And a lot of the ideas that we have about vampires, you know, they can't go out in the sunlight or they're weakened if they go out in the sunlight. You know, their general appearance, the fact that they tend to be high nobility comes directly from Dracula. So the corruption, though, can we circle back on that? What kind of corruption are we talking about? Well, again, looking at the vampire as a analog for Lord Byron, Lord Byron was known for basically showing up, seducing women and men, moving them away from, you know, a more righteous path and essentially just causing them to be, you know, in a very Victorian sense, even though he was a little bit pre-Victorian, downfallen, right? It just it it feels like there's a little overlap here with the picture of Dorian Gray because they're oh, talking absolutely. about him being like this corruption. His uncle was it Uncle Basil? Is it Basil being this corrupting influence on Dorian, and then Dorian being corrupting on other people, and again, very tied into the sexual morality of the day. Absolutely. So okay. that's that's interesting that the vampires are also there, and I guess it makes sense if you think about a lot of the pop culture vampires. Sex is like and especially homosexual sex you know is a very big important part of that that mm-hmm. part of corruption interesting okay right so you get this switch from the folkloric vampire which is a variation on the revenant is a slavic peasant who might return in their own body or they might materialize in a new body depending on the specific case you're talking about 
and they reflect medieval fears. They spread disease. They break your tools. They steal your stuff. They might cause crops to fail. Very medieval and Renaissance worries. And then the modern pop culture vampire, which really begins with Polidori and reaches its kind of apotheosis with Bram Stoker, is all about Victorian fears. They're going to corrupt your morals. They're foreigners from Eastern Europe who come in and start taking up good land from the righteous British people. The pop culture vampire is very much a Victorian creation. So in both cases, and maybe I should have asked this before, was there a way to stave off or keep these remnants vampires and then later on the corrupting vampires away? What I mean, nowadays we've got garlic and we've got crosses, and I totally understand the cross part, the the church morality fighting off the evil corruption morality. But, you know, garlic, is that from the peasant times uh, or is that a newer iteration as well? Like a lot of the things that got worked in modern pop culture vampire avoidance, you know, the cross, which could be any holy symbol, really, but tends to be the cross because, you know, Europe was largely Christian during the uh, medieval period. Garlic, holy water, these were not specific to vampires. These were things you could use to stave off almost any supernatural threat. They get retained through vampires largely because they ended up in the Victorian literature about vampires. But you're worried about a witch or a werewolf? Garlic, holy water, crosses, silver you know, implements, iron implements in some places because that was supposed to be useful against supernatural beings, especially in Western Europe. All of these things can come into play. The idea that the vampire can't see itself in the mirror seems to be a later creation, which again, I gotta, I, I don't know for a fact that's Victorian in nature, but I've got to suspect it is the idea that you've become this corrupt being and you just can't stand to look at yourself so you don't have a reflection. It sounds very Victorian to me. I will readily admit I don't know for a fact that that's it. Or maybe just that mirrors show the real version of you and it's not you anymore. So the real version of you doesn't exist. Therefore, you can't be in the yeah. mirror. Quite possibly. The other thing is, if you look at what you do with the corpse of a vampire, you know, we now have the stake through the heart. That's the, you know, be all end all. Well, if you were worried about a body coming back, you might drive a stake through it. But it wasn't like, you know, a Buffy the Vampire stake that's six inches long that just has to hit the heart. No, this had to be something that would literally pin it to the ground. You were bolting it down into the earth. I see. Okay. Just just a quick point, because I know any buffering people are listening right now. You can stake a vampire with a pencil because Willow Rosenberg staked a pencil with a staked a vampire with a number two pencil. So it doesn't even have to be a very big. It just has to be wood in the heart. So FYI. Well, a, a pencil would just annoy a folkloric vampire if they <laughs> noticed it at all. If they thought somebody might come back as a vampire, they would bury them facing downwards sometimes. Not always, but sometimes they might put an object in their mouth to prevent them from being able to, you know, open their mouth. It was kind of an interesting thing. You get this a lot in folklore where, you know, there's this thought that ghosts and demons and revenants are intelligent and can even be crafty. But you can fool them by doing really stupid things. Oh, we'll put bury him facing downward. That way he'll think he has to burrow da- that direction. You know, it, it will never occur to him that he has to go up. Things like that. So it, when did decapitation and lighting them on fire come about? Very early, as far as we can tell. And this actually gets into a place where I think I have a disagreement with Paul Barber. He 
describe the vampire folklore as being indicative of people not understanding how decomposition works. And I think he's correct. But I think that in order to get to that point, you have to have a reason to be going and digging up the body to start with. So you have to have a suspicion that the dead are returning so that you'll want to go and dig them up. And this, you know, I talked with Irving Finkel on an early episode and he talked about, you know, the dead coming back because you had not done what was due to them, things like that. Mm hmm. And I think it's a very similar thing. It's, it's probably a very, very old belief. You see similar ideas throughout human culture. So I think that once people go and start actually digging up bodies, they start seeing the signs of decomposition. And then they start taking that as evidence that this person's come back from the dead. Then it makes sense that they would start, they would start thinking about these as being signs that somebody's a vampire rather than simply being signs of decomposition. As to the, you know, cutting off the head and so on, a very common approach to dealing with revenants, vampires in particular, but this is actually something you'd see with revenants frequently, was if you determined that the person had become a revenant, you would cut off their head and you might either burn the entire body, including the head, or you might cut out the heart and burn the heart separately. You might also burn the heart and then use it in a potion that often would include urine, not always, it could include other stuff as well. And then the people who were, had been victims would become sick because the vampire would have to drink the potion in order to heal themselves. That feels like the beginning of homeopathy. <laughs> it's worth noting that homeopathy and the popularization of a lot of this folklore, there's some interaction. <laughs> I don't know that uh, homeopathy is in any way based on re revenant folklore. No, I just meant taking a little bit of the thing that's hurting you and then mixing it in and then like that'll that's what's going to cure you. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, that, that's the aspect. It's an old folk belief. It has, it's involved in a lot of folk magic. Something uh, you said about burning the body or burning the heart just to spring into a different pop culture supernatural place the show supernatural on that show when there's a haunting they find the bones of the person who's doing the haunting and they burn the bones that's like a one of the regular things that they do that's part of the mythos over there so that sounds very similar to this as well mm -hmm. well and again a lot of these things that you do to deal with a vampire to stave it off or to stop it are not unique to a vampire. You do this regardless of what you thought the person had turned into. Oh, you think that they've become a witch? You think that they've become a werewolf? You do some similar things. Again, the distinctions were not quite as sharp as we make them now. And every now and again, because I do what I do, I get a lot of articles where archaeologists have discovered such and such a thing. And it proves that vampire beliefs date to this because they found that the person had been pinned to the ground with a thing. Well, I mean, it might be because they thought the body was coming back. Might have been a show of disrespect to somebody who they disliked and they wanted to mutilate the body. You know, all sorts of things can explain some of these uh, elements that people find. Interesting. Very cool. But uh, yeah, I think that it's, I just find it fascinating that A, the pop culture vampire is what people tend to think the folklore vampire is, even though it's a very different creature. And B, a lot of the times when people try to explain the origins of vampire mythology, they don't even acknowledge actual vampire mythology. They look purely to the pop culture and then try to explain it, usually through very rare medical conditions that would not have been common enough to actually spur people to come up with folklore to explain them. Well, the old folklore stuff is definitely scarier 
like the pop culture, especially like the sexual stuff and like being more clever and, and having motivations and wants and desires and like able to have a conversation and stuff that's quote unquote reasonable in some respects. So that's less scary because then you think, oh, well, then you get into the idea of like living forever. And we've always as a culture, all the cultures, but have been in some way or another fascinated or obsessed, depending on who you're talking about, with the concept of living forever or living beyond beyond death, et cetera. Well, and it also gets into something that I find really interesting in the difference here, which is that you can understand why somebody might want to be a pop culture vampire because the pop culture vampire is still, for all that people want to talk about, you know, oh, they're trying to hold back their bestial nature and all this, they're still basically a person, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah, I know that there's going to be a lot of people, especially people who play White Wolf role-playing games will be shouting <laughs> at their audio players saying, no, they've got this demonic force and they're trying to hold it back. They're a person. They have motivations. They have thought processes that we can relate to. They're a person. Whereas folkloric vampire is also kind of a person. I mean, it is the spirit of the person, or not the, well, it might be the spirit, but it's the spirit and or body of the person that died. And it will still have relations. I mean, the one sexual thing I could find pertaining to uh, folkloric vampires is that if you were the spouse of a folkloric vampire, that vampire may come back and have sex with you in a way that would leave you exhausted. Yeah. That That's actually a fairly common thing. I mean, to be fair, if you're not exhausted after sex, I think you're doing it wrong. But that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But... but- I just, you know, just you're talking about where they come from and whatnot, you know, in the in the Buffy verse, it's a human demon hybrid is -hmm. what a vampire is. So it is a person, but it's not really that person anymore, because now we're getting to the concept of souls. So how did the idea of souls figure into folkloric vampire? And then when did that shift happen? Were Lord Byron's original vampires and then the original that book vampire by pompadillon i don't remember the name you said even though it was five minutes ago were, were there souls involved or is that also a modern day pop culture at you know addition to the vampire lore polidori okay Poli- so it's, okay thank you it's been it's been a long time since i've read dracula i can't remember if they ever even touched on the idea of souls dracula is definitely cursed it's not clear how he became a vampire but he can turn other people into vampires you know by feeding on them essentially uh, which is actually more or less in keeping with the idea of the vampire spreading disease, which is a folkloric idea, except that the diseases they usually spread were things like influenza and tuberculosis. Okay. In actual folklore, it's a little fuzzy. There's a lot of ways to become a vampire, none of which are necessarily tied to being fed on by a vampire, although, since again, vampires can spread disease, there are historic cases of people believing that somebody had become a vampire by being the victim of a vampire. But I like the way that Paul Barber sums it up. It says, from the point of view of our informants, the factors that bring revenants into existence fall into the following broad categories. One, predisposition. Two, predestination. Three, events. Things that are done to people, things that they do, things that happen to them. And four, non-events. Things that are left undone. So it could be that you become a vampire because you were just a real bastard in life and (laughs) uh, you were too mean for your meanness to be taken down by death. So of course you're coming back as a revenant. Alternatively, it could be that you were in some way cursed or it's simply the case that you were predestined to become a vampire. This is a very 
I, I think it's worth noting that this comes from Eastern Europe, which is, of course, a place where um, very close to the German states where Calvinism came in and predestination played a huge role in salvation. But the idea is that you simply, for whatever reason, the finger of God pointed at you and said, this guy's going to be a vampire. Hmm. Or, you know, maybe the finger of Satan, depending on the specific structure of your belief system. Some supernatural fingering happened. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry. Pause for Sorry, snickering. not sorry. <laughs> and then you've got the ca category of events. So maybe a witch or sorcerer did something that will cause you to become a vampire. Maybe you simply crossed the wrong supernatural entity in some way and you're becoming a vampire. Alternatively, it might be that you were a vampire's victim and now you're going to come back as a vampire because you died in a wrong way. It could also be that you were not buried properly and now your body's going to come back because you weren't buried properly. You see this? My goodness, so many different ways we should be overrun with vampires and they could all have different cliques and clubs like the purebred vampires and the I, I'm a victim and that's why I'm a vampire. I feel like... I feel like this is like a whole thing. There's an urban fantasy just waiting to be written about all the different support groups for just the sheer volume of vampires in society. And they're all in the YouTube comment section. Yes, you know? exactly. <laughs> Someone needs to get on this. I will. Yes, I will accept an executive producer credit. Thank you very much and good day. The, the fourth category that Paul Barber cites is, to me, the most interesting, which is things that are left undone, because that ties in with ghost folklore generally. Mm -hmm. One of the very common reasons why people come back as ghosts in folklore throughout you know, history and throughout uh, cultures is that something was left undone. They had some business that was never finished. And you find this in North American folklore. You find it in European folklore. Irving Finkel talked about this with Mesopotamia. This is a very common thing. So the idea that you might come back as a revenant because, you know what, you did not do whatever it was you were destined to do or you were supposed to do in life. And until that's done, you're going to continue coming back as a revenant. See, this is why I don't even bother with to-do lists, because if I don't finish my to-do list and I die, then I, it's just faded, right? But if I never had a to-do list to begin with, I can just trick myself into thinking that, yes, everything I needed to get done today, I have gotten done. So pro tip from me to you. This is why in the movie Dawn of the Dead, the dead are all in a shopping mall. They, they had to finish up their last minute shopping. They died without it. <laughs> And it these, led to a zombie apocalypse. I hope you're happy. These sales are to die for. <laughs> oh. Oh. Heads will roll if I don't get my discount. <laughs> oh. Aren't you glad we're doing this episode? I'm so glad we're doing this episode. <laughs> Listeners, this experiment has been a failure. I will go back to reading scripts. <laughs> Okay, so what's next in the evolution of vampire lore? We started with folklore, you know, remnants, uh, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey, lots of different things, you know, all the different labels and the grodiness. And then we moved on to repressed sexual ideas and corruptions. And, and, then, and then we moved on to souls and vampires with souls and, you know, cheerleaders, et cetera. And then, then, they, then they sparkled. That was a thing for a bit. I've heard that they have diaries. That's a thing that I don't know very much about, but that is definitely there's vampire diaries. So so what's next for the vampires? What do you think, Matthew? Well, you know, it's funny. It, the vampire had been a villain or at least villain like 
for a long time. And even Anne Rice had the vampires largely as villains early on, although they were protagonists. And I've not read Anne Rice's stuff. I so have. You'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. But my understanding is that as those books went on, some of the vampires actually became more heroic. I yes. don't know if that's true. Okay. Yeah, kind of. I mean, they got bored. Not all of them were evil all the time. And they, some of them definitely were like, let's not hurt humans because they're sad and pathetic. Right. But I think that gets into the idea that the vampire is essentially at this point another human it's a type of human you know they have motivations and impulses that we can understand as humans certainly that was present to a degree in dracula by the time you get to Anne rice that seems to be in full bloom so the next natural step is that they can be good or evil so you know as much as people make fun of the sparkly vampires in twilight i think that was inevitable so if if we've moved from scary and villain into hero, it feels like victim might have gotten, a, I mean, there was definitely it touched on that, like you were saying in the past, but I feel like that might be the next one. The I'm well, already remember the book. Uh, I am legend. Well, I was just going to say, I well, there's definitely that, but also I'm already starting to see zombie victims. Uh, I want to see the girl with all the gifts, etc. There's been a, kind of an influx of that right now, where people are there's the zombie type of apocalypse, and not the zombies as you think of Night of the Living Dead, etc. But basically that same kind of an idea. Um, I just read a book called The Hell Will Follow You. I think that's what it was called. I'll have to find it. And something else recently, too, where there was a some kind of virus that changed people and but they're victims, even though they're now a new version of human. And like you just said, I am legend as well, which you could say because either zombie or or vampire, depending on how you look at it. Right. Which version you're reading, I suppose. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that it's inevitable that a character like the vampire and, you know, we saw this happen actually a bit earlier with werewolves. You know, werewolves were simply the people who had made a pact with demons or were cursed in medieval folklore. They were monstrous. They may or may not have wanted to be monstrous, but they were. By the time you get the 20th century version of the werewolf with the wolfman, which, again, much like vampires, the MGM Universal movies about werewolves are where we get most of what we think of as werewolf folklore, even though it bears very little resemblance to the actual folklore. But, you know, werewolves have been victims in fiction since at least the early 20th century due to, um, you know, the uh, Universal Monster movies. And I think that we're going to continue to see that kind of trend with things like vampires. Once you make the character human, it opens them up to the full range of possible human experiences. Yeah, very true. And that is how folklore, yes, that is how folklore evolves and changes through time. Yeah. Cool. Well, any final thoughts about vampires? What's your favorite vampire? Who's your favorite vampire? <laughs> My favorite vampire. Huh. Y you know, I don't know that I really have one. <laughs> I, I've, I've liked a lot of fictional vampires I've seen over the years. I don't have a favorite, though. My favorite is Detective Angel <laughs> or Spike. I don't know. It kind of goes hand in hand. They're pretty awesome. That's that's how I like my vampires. Although I was definitely into the Anne Rice vampires for a while. I think everybody who lived through the 90s was at some point. This is true. This is true. 
Um, and then there was that ill-fated first kill, first kiss, first fight. I don't know what it was. First something Netflix show. Those were vampires. That was very recent. They were lesbian high school vampire girls with a, a, a slightly different. And that was interesting because you thought, oh, it's vampires. And then at some point, I think there were like snakes involved. Somebody got eaten by a snake. It, it There's a reason there's no second season. Sad, but true. Well, and vampires also have uh, gotten into science fiction frequently. You've got fiction that has the vampire being the result of a virus, for example, but also you get a movie like Life Force where the vampires are aliens. Hmm. There you go. Have to check that out. Well, I think that that about wraps it up. Very cool. Well, this was fun. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky!